Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD. And I'm Eric Toms, the writer-director, whose first film, Bakersfield Noir, will be out later this year. On this Thursday bonus episode, we are going to play the interview from episode 338 with documentary filmmakers Nick Scown and Julie Seba about their feature documentary, Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, which I thought was a good companion piece to Cynthia and Christine's story, because while the circumstances of them working together are much different. It seems like the collaboration and the way they work together was pretty similar. And after that, we play a round of Yo the Expert. But first, don't forget to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash MMIH. So without any further bibble babble, here's our throwback interview with Nick Scown and Julie Seba. One of you give us the elevator pitch for too soon. Uh, sure. Yeah. Too Soon is uh, Too Soon Comedy After 9-11 is a documentary that follows the kind of stop and then rise of comedy after the attacks on September 11th, tracking how comedians and entertainers try and find a way to discuss what happened and kind of heal from the tragedy. And uh, how many days did you shoot the film? <laughs> well, it was a... Uh, Four and a half year shoot. Uh, <laughs> the, I, Over I, I th- how many days? Hmm. Yeah, maybe like 50 <laughs> days. Like, Because I think we had around 50 interviews that we shot. So, um, and it was usually, uh, maybe maybe it was like 35 days because there was a couple days that we did multiple interviews, but usually it was just one or two uh, per shoot day. Well, we did like two trips to New York that were about, what, a week each and a dozen and a half people and then trip to Montreal we had five and then we shot around LA on off days during like Nick's lunch breaks and <laughs> yeah that's a good question we would have to do some some schedule digging to really get a final tally on that but uh you know that's that's the thing with doing it with just two people for four years and calling in favors and borrowing all the equipment we just like shot when we could basically uh, my favorite question: What is uh, what's the budget? That is a good question. Uh, it well, it's I'd say when it was just Julie and I, the budget was a used car, maybe a used Prius with, with like that budget, and then to finish it with Vice is like a one bedroom condo in Los Angeles, probably. Was was like that's like, a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, I mean, we got we were able to get a lot of it done by ourselves, but in the end, we do need you, especially for our project, which which uses so many clips from other things. We needed to be able to license footage, or to pay for a fair use lawyer to explain why we weren't going to pay for this, or like how we could legally do it. So that those became the biggest price points, which which Julie and I from the beginning kind of new like oh we can get this in the can for not a lot of money but to finish it we will need some more money because there's just too many clips to to put in the film so 
Um, and then, you know, like why, like, how'd you come up with the idea? Like why this story, you know, of all stories for you guys to tell? Well, I had um, uh, uh, been looking at film schools in New York um, and I happened to have scheduled a trip, you know, months in advance that ended up being two weeks after the attack. And so I was in New York visiting friends, didn't end up going to see any of the schools, just kind of hanging out with my friends, trying to help them with what they were, the PTSD that they were all kind of dealing with. And um, uh I had to actually walk through the ground zero area because the subways were stopped. So you had to, I had to like take my luggage and walk from one train stop to the other. And uh, just that obviously stuck with me. And when I got home from that trip, there was the onion nine 11 issue kind of waiting for me. And I laughed for like, I was like, Oh, I'm like laughing for the first time in weeks. And it was just a very cathartic moment. And so when I started pitching Julie the idea, she had the same thing of, of oh, I had that 9-11 issue. Um, I'm writing, if you see me writing, I'm writing down questions to ask you in a few minutes. Um, so uh, you answered this already, but maybe there's more color. How long did y'all spend working on the film from, from that moment to release? I mean, I could do the math. It's, you know, 20, yeah. 20 years, but uh, maybe you could bring more information there. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so... Uh, I mean, I had this idea for a very long time. I just kind of thought someone else would do it because I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I love comedy, but I don't have a comedy background. Um, but about five and a half years ago, I was, I think it was the sp spring of 2016. I, <laughs> I had read this book uh, by Tim Ferriss called the four hour work week. <laughs> and uh, I was, I had gotten it actually for like a family member who was struggling, but I was like, Oh, I should probably read a little of this to make sure it's not, BS before I start potting it off to other people. And uh, so I read it on like a plane trip uh, back home and it had a thing of like, if there's an idea or a, a concept or a corporation or whatever that you've had for a long time and that you want to do something with, but you don't know how, are there five people you could email um, today that could help you with it? And I had met Julie at a friend's wedding and Julie is a comedy journalist who's been doing it for two decades. And so I was like, oh, well, I can at least pitch this idea to Julie and she can tell me if there's any traction there. And so that's when kind of Julie and I started working together. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that pitch lunch was in May of 2016. And then we definitely started filming in July at the Just for Laughs Montreal Comedy Festival that year. So yeah, this thing like predates the Trump presidency. It's <laughs> and it had gone through a different couple different uh, subtitles of when we were a bit more maybe optimistic about the role comedy was going to play in healing the nation. And uh, yeah, just, just a few different incarnations and just kind of all finally came together the, the five years later with a product we're yeah. very, very happy and proud of. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of the, the, the pitch. And then we, I mean, almost right away, we started researching, finding clips we could use previous interviews if anyone had done any so that we knew who we should try to talk to um and sort of kind of building a master list of like okay who are the people we want to talk to and then seeing who on julie's uh rolodex that those matched up so sh she could do that and then me just so julie was calling in favors to her comic friends and i was calling in favors to my filmmaker friends of like can i borrow your camera stealing edit time on weekends or on nights just to whenever we could so that we could start 
cutting like trailers and proof of concepts uh, just so that we could show show the people we wanted to interview, this is what the film is going to be like because you go to anyone <laughs> kind of like uh, you were, you were saying like, and you're like, Oh, it's a nine 11. It's a, a comedy documentary. And people are like, I, this seems very dangerous. <laughs> like this seems like a, a, a an easy, you know, a, a bad thing that I could fall into. So we had to be like, no, 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 watch this. Here's what it's about. Here's what it's going to be like. And as we interviewed more people, then they could see, oh, my friend's in it, like Todd Barry is in it, or, you know, Gilbert Godfrey is in it. And once they see those other people are in it, then they feel more comfortable and understand, oh, this is not going to be some kind of hit piece or, or anything like that. Like we are treating our, all our interview subjects with respect and, 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 and we're treating the tragedy with respect. We're not it's not just a series of 9-11 jokes, which is kind of like the last thing we wanted people to think. Yeah, I would say from the comedian's perspective, like they did get it, but also like Nick said, there was just kind of like, ooh, that's a great idea. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like it, the idea that people outside of the comedy world would really understand the concept of it. Um, but we also wanted to kind of narrow the field down um, because, you know, we, we could be talking to comedians still at this point. You know, it could have been a 10-year project. It could have been a 15-year project. Um, so we wanted to narrow it down a little bit to either uh, people within the comedy industry that were personally or professionally affected by the events of 9-11 or that they had specifically 9-11 material. So it could all be kind of strung together chronologically from firsthand experience as opposed to just, you know, talking heads, you know, wafting poetically. It was all very much like um, people who had very visceral memories of everything that happened, you know, short term and long term and what the effects were continuing even today. And then um, this is a question for both of you to answer. Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? Well, well, this is Julie's <laughs> first project, so so I, yeah, first fill, yeah. I've, I've I've done journalism for um, nineteen years now. Um, you know, written for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and Variety and all that. Um, documentary is something I always kind of envisioned down the road. Um, especially in recent years as, you know, journalism isn't quite the field that it used to be in terms of relevance and truth-telling and financially and all those things. That's a whole different other podcast altogether I can talk about. Um, but I also, you know, have released a, a book and I have another book in the works. And, you know, when Nick approached about this idea, it was like, oh, yes, this is definitely the next stage of a comedy evolution, comedy career evolution for me. It's just a way of still telling big, important stories of things that comedy fans should know about just in a different, exciting format. Yeah, and I, I mean, for me, I, like I have, I've worked on a lot of other projects in, in my film and TV career, a lot as an editor and then um, as a director. Uh, it's funny, I, I, it seems like I tend to either make things that are very simple uh, and easy to pull off. Like a lot of most of my short films, even the ones that have done well on the festival circuit, I've usually designed to be shot in one day just because I found it's easier to get quality talent and good actors. If you're just like, it's just going to be one day. 
an eight hour, 10 hour shoot. It's not going to be crazy. And you can get like good talent to agree to do like one day on a weekend when they're working on a show where maybe their character doesn't get to do fun stuff and you're giving them something else to do. So like, I would usually design my short films to, to be simple, but with this project or like my first uh, narrative feature film, I, they're just any trying to make anything feature length is just, it takes time. Like, uh, you know, uh, the first one, like I was talking about how long it took to make this one. And um, uh, uh, someone who, who knows me was like, well, how long did it take you to make the first feature? I was like, well, that was like five years of writing. And then a couple years of, you know, like financing and shooting and editing and then, film festivals and then trying to get a distributor. And so it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, it all takes time. Uh, this was more challenging uh, than I say a feature one. Cause a lot of times it's, you're just waiting uh, in other places where it was like, I was just waiting to hear on the money or waiting for to hear on film festivals. Uh, but on this one, it was just, we were working. We always had something to work on. There was never a, t- a, a downtime. Essentially it was always, we can be editing, we can be researching, we can be archiving clips. Uh, so that was kind of the difference between maybe like a narrative project and a documentary. And I said it the other night at the after the screening, like it's really hit me the realization that it was kind of a good thing that it took us five years, most of it just the two of us, because it's a lot better than I think it would have been if it was just a year or something like that, because we really had the time to figure out, you know, what are the story beats we want to hit and how do we want to say things? And most of it was, you know, our voices without a lot of outside control. Um, but thankfully Vice like saw the vision at the end after we had put all the hard work into it. So yeah, I'm kind of down with this whole five year thing from here on out. I mean, it was good to, it was good to experiment because we could try stuff and fail and no one would see it but us. Uh, whereas when you're handing in a cut to the network, you really want to make sure that it is what you want it to be because they might fall in stuff with something that you are not happy with. And then you're like, Oh, why did we show them that? Cause now they like it and we're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did we fail at any part? I don't think there was anything no, terrible, no. but <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, but, yeah. but I, but there was potential if we had uh, been working with collaborators from the start of like, you're, if I don't know, especially I'm a, I was a, I was a good student in college. So I was, you know, you like want to get the A from the teacher. So you can sometimes try to please the other people and give them what they want versus what you think you want or the film needs. And because Julie and I had been discussing for four years what this should be, we were very clear in like what our vision was. If if we we would tell an archive once we had an archivist, we'd be like, these are the kind of clips we want. Like very specific. We're not like, oh, just grab everything. We're like, no, no, we need this from this person around this time like good luck because julie and i tried to find it and we couldn't so good luck to you um i'm dying to ask like 30 questions but the one that's uh biting at me the most is i work in artist support and if i were talking to two filmmakers who built an entire documentary off of archival and licensed material that they didn't have the rights to I would give them such a talking to because I would just be like, how like, what do you what do you think? So it's just going to come in and rescue you and pay for all of this footage and then release you onto a massive platform. Um, And that happened to you. So I'm just like, can you how did you get to Vice (laughs) and what was the backup plan? Well, we did. uh, We were very 
as we were working, we became very conscious. We always had, okay, what is the worst case scenario plan? And so this movie was going to come out on the 20th anniversary, whether Vice was involved or not. And that was kind of our pitch when we did pitch to networks. It's like, we are doing this. It is coming out. You can either be a part of it or not, which I think was a stronger pitch position than other projects would, would have. And we were very conscious of making any essential clip that we were using be something that you could argue is fair use. So we would always have either the person themselves talking about the clip. So either David Cross setting up a David Cross bit or what are the other comics saying, oh, I love this Patrice O'Neill bit. And then and then also explaining why it works so that there there is always a fair use argument of like, we are, we're not just showing a clip to show a clip. We are, uh, so we were like very conscious of that. Um, and so we knew there could be a version, not the best version. If we couldn't license anything, there would have been challenges because you can't do like B-roll and uh, like things like that. You can't get away with fair use. So uh, it would have been challenging, but I mean, we would have found a way to do it with still photos or whatever was necessary. And it would have been hard to make trailers because once you're doing promotional things, you can't use fair use and promotional items. So mm. we had to be very conscious at the end of like, okay, what clips do we, we could fair use this clip, but is this clip worth paying the licensing for so we can use it in promotion? So we were always, always had a fail safe for that. Um, uh, but then we knew we would have to raise the, even if it was just us, we knew we were going to have to do a Kickstarter or something to raise the money to hire a fair, loose, a fair use lawyer. Cause we didn't want to just <laughs> count on, Oh, we've been, we've been smart about it. So we, we, we did that. And so, uh, that was kind of the the fail safe was to uh, be very conscious of what what it means to use a clip and making sure it was as as button tight as possible. Um, yeah, sorry, I forgot about the the, sec- the second part of the question of uh, I think oh, you of the, the backup plan because you ha- always had yeah. the backup plan of the version of the film that you could still make. Yeah, I mean, it would be you know, in, in like a writing equivalent, it'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm doing an adaptation of this book that I don't have the rights to it. It's like, oh yeah, you'd like, don't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but it's like, oh, but if you're doing an adaptation of a book that's in the public domain, oh yeah, go ahead. Like, so that was, we were trying to make sure that we were were clear on, on what we were doing and not just uh, gonna have a film that we couldn't show or that if we put up on Vimeo would get taken down because we were uh, in breach of uh, content or whatever. And in addition um, to um, a lot of the comedy clips being fair use, just, you know, the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York and the Com- National Comedy Center upstate New York were also really, really good about, you know, kind of grasping the vision and helping us out with a lot of filling in some of those gaps too for all the different, uh, uh, what do you call the, not displays, but... Uh, the B-roll, the archival, the whatever. When you, when you go into a museum and it's like, wait, we, we have this uh the kiosk. Is that weird? is that not the word? Okay. When you go into a museum <laughs> and it's like when you go, yeah, and it's like we have the the pyramid display that's running for exhibits. 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 Yes. It's <laughs> early in LA. <laughs> early morning. Exhibits. Um, I'm a so journalist. so i just wanted to kind of break down your process so did you make the whole movie before you went to pitch to networks um 
and then like kind of just like you like Liz said, like you just took the risk, you made the movie you wanted to make, and then you're like, okay, now we need someone to foot the bill, you know, and then just start to like go out and pitch people. And then second part of that question, like how did you get to the, the ability to pitch at these places like Vice, et cetera? Yeah. So what we what we did is we got essentially um we had used up kind of Julie's Rolodex and my very limited Rolodex of people that we could interview. And we kind of for ourselves made a rough cut of the film to be like, okay, here's the story. And then we could look at it and be like, okay, what, it, what are the weak points that need strengthening? And I mean, we discussed like, oh, this, if this was all the film was, was, was the rough cut, it was still, it was pretty good, but we really thought the idea needed to be great. And so we were like, we need more insight from talk show hosts, or we need more insight from these, these people at the roast besides Jeff and Gilbert or things like that. And so um, since we had a rough cut, it was then very easy. Well, it wasn't easy, but it was, it was, uh, we were able to then boil that down into like a sizzle reel. Uh, I think it was like five, five or eight okay. minutes of like, here's, Here's the here's the story. Here's who we here's the big names we have of Mark Marin or David Cross or whoever we got on our own. So that uh, and we made we made our own kind of pitch deck, which again was a little easier because we already knew the story. So it was mostly just translating what we had in the rough cut onto the page, um, and then we took that to production uh, produ production companies. We were trying to find a production company partner who could help us get those names. Uh, and um, I had a friend who had worked on the history of comedy, uh, which was a CNN series. And uh, so I was like, Hey, you guys did the history of comedy. Do you want to do this? It seems right up your alley. And uh, uh, one of the development people, uh, loved the project he moved to a uh, play, uh, Dan Baglio and he went to pulse films uh, and he was like, I love this project. It's the, when I took this job, it was the first thing I pitched, even though I didn't have really permission to do it. Cause I just loved the idea. And so with Dan and pulse, we then kind of polished all our material, our materials. We made the, the sizzle a little shorter and a little more scopey and had like their, design team make a real pitch deck that like like ours like got the information across but like i was just building it on like my girlfriend's laptop using you know pages or whatever apple program so it, it did the job but it wasn't a nice pretty deck and so uh once we had that with dan it became a matter of okay who's the who's a, an executive producer who could help us get the interviews, the, the the bigger names or the names we don't have access to now. And because Dan had worked on the history of comedy, he knew Sean Hayes and his production company, Hazy Mills uh, with uh, Todd Milliner. And he's like, they do a lot of shows. They know a lot of people. And so I think, and because they did the history of comedy, like they, they'll get the tone of this. And so uh, once we had that kind of triumvirate of, we have Pulse, this production company that can deliver a film. We have uh, Sean Hayes and Hazen Mills who can get talent. We have a rough cut from Julie and I that we had like a really solid base to then go pitch to people, which um, 
happened to coincide with a pandemic happening. And so it, uh, it helped on a lot of fronts because we, we now not only had to figure out how are we going to shoot, how are we going to get these people for interviews, but how are we even going to shoot people during a pandemic? So uh, we started, so with that kind of team, we were then able to set up pitch meetings uh, because people know Sean and they, they know Dan, uh, they were willing to hear the pitch. And so it was a matter of pitching to people again, from a little more position of strength of like, we're not trying to start this from scratch. We have a rough cut and here's, here's what we have and here's what we need. And do you want to help us? And so pitched to a lot of networks and a lot of distributors and um, there's some interest uh, from a couple of places, but our meeting with vice the, it was just a difference in tone, which it wasn't a pitch of like, here's Julie and I telling you the story, you know, like that kind of thing. They're like, no, 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 no. We get the story. Like we've seen your materials. We got it. What do you need to finish the film? Like it was more of like a production meeting. And so it became, oh, great. We need interviews with these people. We need these many shoot days. We need this for post. We need an archivist. Like it became a, uh, a meeting about what it would take to finish the film versus here's what the film is. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and so Dan, like after the meeting was, I think we've sold the project because we didn't really had to pitch it to him. They were just like, they were just acting as if the project is already there. So, um, and so once that happened and the deal was signed with vice, um, it was in a matter of, uh, yeah, of figuring out, okay, how do we shoot these interviews with these people that Sean is getting and, uh, the pulse team is helping us book these new interviews, how are we going to actually shoot them? Um, I want to do what I often do, which is interrupt the momentum of the entire interview. And with a, <laughs> with a left field question, uh, I'm putting myself in Julie's uh, shoes and I'm thinking, here's this guy I met at this wedding and he's just some like, seems like a nice guy. I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. And now he's approaching me about whether this is a good idea, this documentary, what got you so involved and what, what, how do you know that this was someone you wanted to work with? And obviously turnaround is fair play. Nick, you can answer the same about Julie, but I'm just curious because it's someone who's has a informal interest in film gets pulled into this four to five year process is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, I've always been really interested in documentary any, anyway. Um, and the friend, uh, you know, who kind of introduced me to Nick at the wedding is uh, a former comedian. I knew him for several years uh, and just always thought he was fantastic and trusted, you know, anybody he would introduce me to. Um, and Nick is also in a writing group with him. So there's sort of that creative connection. Like I knew he was someone who had something if my other friend speaks so highly of him, obviously. And did my fair share of research too. He he checked out okay, uh, but just the idea that um, you know it was flattering when he approached me, um, and I had been very much actively looking for other ways to kind of expand projects I was doing. And his idea was just so original and brilliant. And he was very clearly passionate about it. And like you said, we kind of bonded over the onion issue that I had kept. I kept that thing for years, moving back and forth to New York and Vegas and LA. And it, it meant a lot to me. So to find somebody else who had, had meant something 
so much too was just kind of yeah this is this is a good fit it's one of those instances of uh your gut is telling you yes and you know this is one of the appropriate moments to listen to your gut and i'm very glad i did Um, so, uh, <laughs> this is really bad, but I just want to go back to what we were talking about before. I knew um, you would, because that's, <laughs> that would make the most amount of sense. We were on a trajectory. You're going to ask about virtual filmmaking or something that would be like germane anyway. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just curious, like, um, what, uh, names did vice help you get that you couldn't get on your own? Like, what was that list of names that they helped secure? Well, we were hazy. Like, Sean yeah, Hayes, like like Sean, yeah, like so like Sean Hayes uh, really helped. I mean, Pulse was good for um, kind of all the production stuff. They were really good at, uh, and then like and like uh, securing the talent once we knew once we had their contact info. But like Hazy Mills was really good. Like, and they had a great suggestion, which also I helped the story. Which is we had focused almost entirely on kind of stand up comics, The Onion, and they were like, well, you know because Sean loves theater. He's like, you know, Broadway had to close too. And there's a lot of comedic performers on Broadway. We should talk to like Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick of the producers. I'm like, that's a great idea. If you want to talk to them. <laughs> and so he <laughs> texts, texts them. And, uh, and now we have that on the books. And because of now, including that storyline, it made sense to include like Scott Thompson storyline, which is also a kind of theater, New York off Broadway story. Um, and so like that kind of, that was kind of like, that would be like the way it would work is, is they would be like, oh, you should talk to this person. And, uh, you know, and we would kind of work our way through a list of like, okay, who are the talk show people we want to talk to? If we can't get them, can we get the head, the head writer? Can we get um, one of the producers? Uh, so like for SNL, it's like, we got Beth McCarthy Miller, who's the director and we got, um, Michael Schur, who was the the head writer who did Weekend Update. So um, that that's that's where they it helped is is and it was twofold. It was because we it was a Sean people know Sean Hayes, so it helped in that regard, and also helped to say we have a home for the film. It's going to be on Vice this September, and that helped with getting people that we wouldn't get before because even like Mark Marin, uh, you know, he's, he's talked about on his show, he's done interviews for documentaries that never get released. And that is not uncommon that these people get approached for a project. They spend their time sitting with you and then nothing ever comes of it. And so once we had a distributor and a date and a timeline, it, and it'd be like, so if you want to talk to us, you got to talk to us in the next three months. Cause this is coming out in September. Uh, and so having those forces is what helped us kind of get those, those people who maybe might've been hesitant before to, to sit down. Um, follow up question. Sorry, Liz. Um, so when you had Sean Hayes and Pulse involved, was it like, you know, you're just going off and you're like, you know, booking Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and doing these interviews, or was it all kind of contingent on having vice or someone like vice, like ready to distribute the movie before they would actually start? you know, getting the ball rolling on those other things. Yeah. I mean, we, I don't know, Julie can talk about, it, but yeah, we had kind of reached the limit of our, of what we could do by ourselves. And so we knew we needed partners to, to, to get those, to fill the, not fill the holes, but to uh, secure the foundations of the parts of the structure that we thought needed more. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think we kind of topped out with um, we gotten Marin, Janine Garoppolo, David Cross, Daryl Hammond, uh, Lewis Black, uh, Doug Stanhope. Yeah, those kind of names. And then they filled in the gaps with Chris Catan was the big one for SNL. Um, and then uh, Cedric the Entertainer for The Roast, uh, Rob Riggle. Uh, talking about being a first uh, a 9-11 first responder and then also you know seeing firsthand the blowback that Janine Garofalo had later as she was speaking out against the Iraq war um, yeah it was just kind of everybody calling in their favors and just kind of like Nick said filling in the gaps where we needed whether they were actual talent or the the writer producers also like uh, Rich Dom for the Colbert Report and um, Allison Silverman as well, kind of those industry side of people that we didn't really know ourselves that well. Yeah, or even like someone like Jimmy Carr, who yeah. we had actually spoken to years earlier at like a Comedy Central party of like, here's the idea, like, and he's like, I don't think I need to talk about this, you know, at the time. And then, but then when it's now we have Vice and there's a release date, Jimmy Carr will now sit and talk with us, you know? So yeah. it just had that extra weight of, uh, like a stamp of approval uh, on an email where it's not just me or Julie asking. It's like this person, this producer for vice is asking you if you want to talk to us, you know, is there a, a theme or a mission you have with this film? I'm just thinking about Norm Macdonald and his recent passing and the kind of uh, humor that he's famous for and kind of controversy that he falls into as well. I'm thinking about cancel culture, I'm thinking about the importance of humor. So in in make in that onion article and in the purpose in your goals for this film, uh, was there a mission to encourage free speech? I don't want to answer for you, but I just feel like there's something here that ties you to that that hasn't been spoken about yet. Yeah, I think we were definitely very adamant about, you know, like Nick said, it we we didn't want to just have a 9-11 clip show, you know, of jokes. There was definitely a story to tell and a message to get across that through uh, combining, you know, it's 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 part uh, recent American history lesson for young comedy fans who don't remember this happening and don't remember what this time was like before social media or we had coined the phrase cancel culture. And yet it existed. You know, people had real repercussions personally and professionally about the things they said on stage, you know, up to and including death threats. Um, so you can combine that with, yes, there's also comedy philosophy. This is how comedians try to process events in the world on stage. Uh, like Dino Badala said at the time, it was like one big group therapy session and also a social psych psychology element to it of, yeah, what do comedians provide to audiences that kind of help move us forward and regain a sense of normalcy and, you know, even push society forward in a lot of ways. If you look at the Bill Hicks and Lenny Bruce's and George Carlin's and all that, they were always the ones who were starting to get us thinking in new ways about, you know, what the government is telling us and what the media might not be telling us, especially in this case. Um, yeah, so we uh, definitely just wanted to explore those different options of all coming together and really saying, yes, comedy is something that helps us process. It's universal, it's timeless. Um, you know, as they said in the film, there were 
Holocaust jokes. Uh, you know, there's Kennedy assassination jokes. There's Pearl Harbor jokes. It's not something that's ever going to go away. This is just the prism through which we explored it of, oh, this was the time when it was like everybody needed it in those days and weeks and years that followed. Um, so I have a, a question that you can't answer, but um, maybe you can give like a little bit of an answer to it. Um, so <laughs> when you guys uh, <laughs> sold the movie to Vice, like, was that like your payday? Like, or is there like another structure in the works where you're going to get paid out on the movie based off of what happens to later, like as amount of views through Vice or where Vice is able to distribute it elsewhere? Or how did that whole deal work for you guys as filmmakers? Yeah, we, so essentially um, the, the bulk of our payment actually came in the form of a licensing fee because Vice is licensing all the interviews that we already shot. So that became kind of the bulk of what we were getting paid. And then in addition to that, we, we are getting uh, paid a salary or whatever you want to call it as the directors and executive producers on the project. So that became uh, like the main ways we're getting paid currently. And then down the line, once um, Vice's uh, uh, control of the film passes, whatever they're I don't know if it's three months or six months, whatever their length of time is that they hold the rights to the film. Then after that, uh, us and Pulse Films and Hazy Mills is kind of like the three production company originators will then uh, hopefully make profits on, you know, on uh, distribution after that, whether it's on iTunes sales or if it's on a streaming platform down the road or international sales, those kind of things will, will come down the line. We also um, did get a little bit of uh, a reimbursement, not not the whole thing, but for the for the funds that we'd put in personally. So that was a little ask that we had in the contract that they were kind enough to accept. So, so it sounds like all in all, it probably covered the expenses you guys paid on the making the movie. Your right? huge Prius that right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we got we we got our used Prius back. I mean, I, I mean, the funny thing is, I like someone was like, "Oh, well, that's great that you guys, you know, made money." I was like, "Well, yeah." If we did the math though on like the hours worked versus the payout, it would, you know, we were working for slave wages. But, but we did. I mean, it is nice. I mean, when we started this, I mean, I told Julie like, this could just be on our credit cards to to get this done, and we would hopefully sell it and just get our credit, you know, get that P- P- uh, Prius money back. So the fact that we we were made whole and, uh, you know, we're have been compensated in some fashion, you know, is, is great. Cause that does not happen in every case there's, there's, but we were prepared to not get that. I guess that would be the thing is it's nice, but we were prepared of like, okay, we're going to have to do a Kickstarter. We're going to have to get donations. We're going to have to do whatever it takes to get this made. Um, and then hope that there's an audience there for this film that will will be able to recoup those funds. But either way, we were going to finish it, whether we did or not. And so it is nice that uh, we have been compensated in, in any way. Like, I don't know, it's weird to say as like an artist, but like, yeah, you're like, even just getting some money is like, great, you know. Uh, well, as, so a, true. as a freelance journalist, I will say, um, it's not a life-changing amount by any means, but it's still like, 
definitely the biggest payday I have ever had. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, like most filmmakers don't make any money on their films. They, They spend years and years and years on them. They put, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or more into them and then they never see a penny. So the fact that you guys got a return is pretty huge and you should guys yeah. be very proud of that, you know? Um, but, well, like, uh, oh, can I give an example? So just like an example sure. of my first narrative feature, the most money I made on that film was that, I uh, we did like a, a four, like I four walled it, um, for like awards considerations for, for like film independent and those kind of things. And the most money I got back was from f- renting the theater out and getting the ticket, my share of the tickets like that was the most money i made on that film. <laughs> uh, right. which it was not a lot uh because it was a small theater but like it literally i was like oh i was like this is the best part of this was putting it in a theater like who would have guessed that would be where i would make any kind of money it's uh, a yeah, cleaner accounting is what you experienced yes. just a, a <laughs> yes. quick transaction um yeah. i know we're winding down but when you sent the pitch email to us about this about getting on this show you've you did focus a lot on virtual production and working in the pandemic. And I, I realized that we've barely talked about that. So if there's any way um, you can give some takeaways for our audience who are filmmakers on how best to put together virtual productions, it would be great for them to hear. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the big things we kind of figured out was um, don't, whatever you do, just don't make it look like a zoom, you know, like uh that was that was kind of the network's biggest concern and our concern was that oh it's people talking to a camera um so what we would do is we would have julie set up on an ipad or like a laptop off to the side for eye line so that the interview subject could talk to her mm-hmm. and uh and then we would have a, a remote crew camera set up from a safe distance or outside or whatever the interview subject was comfortable with if they were vaccinated or not. Um, uh, and there's also with, a lot of guidelines that we had to follow the, the rule pulses. Yeah. And pulses, getting yeah. people tested. So we, yeah. we did, we fought, we followed all those. Um, but the big thing was yeah, to, to keep the kind of, the kind of camera that we were shooting with to use as, as close as we could, the same camera and lenses. And then I could remotely, tried my best to direct the crew as to what they should be, what the framing should be, uh, what the lighting and look should be uh, while Julie is handling the the interviews so that they're, they're talking to a person, even though sometimes they're not happy that they're talking to a person on an iPad, like uh, I won't say names, but there was an interview subject who was like, what, why I, I came all the way here to talk to another screen. Like, I, I, what am I doing here? You know, um, that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, but he was I still a bit forward about it. He was still good, and he gave <laughs> gave a great interview. Um, but it was Scott uh, Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but Scott was Scott was great. Uh, once he once he got into it, and the conversation actually started. But there was uh, the initial of like, oh God, not another Zoom. Um, and what we found was, <laughs> you know, it seemed it seemed like, oh, this is going to be a pain in the butt. But it actually kind of helped us in some ways because it did give us a freedom to shoot with people that we wouldn't have had otherwise, where typically it would be like block shooting. Like, okay, we're going to be in New York this week. We can only shoot people this week that are available at this time. And because we were doing it remotely, we could be like, you just tell us when and we'll get a, we'll get a three-person crew for that day to shoot with you. And so like we wouldn't have got Jimmy Carr because he was in London. So if we were doing it a normal thing, we wouldn't have flown 
ourselves out and a camera crew out to shoot Jimmy Carr, but because it was remotely, we could get him set it up and do it easily. So at it had five its, in the morning in LA. Yes. Time. So, yeah. So it had its limitations. Cause there are some times where say there's like a look, there's, there's an interview subject where they found an outdoor location, but there's a train there. And so we're like, Oh God, like, how are we going to make this work? And, or like, okay, we can't shoot outside here. Let's put the camera crew outside and the interview subjects inside. And so those things were, if we had been on set, we would have seen that problem right away and fixed it was challenging. But I, I think the benefits of being able to get whenever we wanted, whenever they were available, because we could just book the crew around them uh, was a flexible thing that did help ultimately. And also financially beneficial. It saved us a lot of money. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus, yeah, versus flying us out everywhere. Um, we could, because yeah, we could we could afford to have to do the testing, and because that does add to your budget if you're having to test crew. So, not having Julie and I on set or flying us around the country helped make up for some of those those costs. So, I have one more final question before we get to our little five final questions. Like, you know, Nick, you've done, um, you know, scripted narrative and documentary. Julie, this is your first film. What's next for you guys? Are you guys going to do another documentary? Are you going to work together again? Not to put you on the spot. Like, what's the plan going forward for you guys, filmmakers? We've discussed, uh, yeah, we, we've already thrown around a couple ideas, some based on people we recently worked with. Um, yeah, nothing. I, I I have another book in the works that's separate from the documentary realm, uh, a memoir with comedian Byron Bowers uh, about his life. Um, yeah, and some other projects, none of which can really be mentioned yet, but there's always stuff on the on Ooh, the exciting. Fun. Yeah, I think for, I, I, I mean, we haven't gone in depth and had a like power, but I, I think both of us feel like we want to continue to make, I mean, we have been approached by other companies to do something similar uh, on similar topics. And so it, we made a good film or, or, you know, the reaction has been that we made a good film. And so we think there will be opportunities to do similar things. And I think Julie and I's big thing is making sure that it fits. If it's going to be under the too soon brand, does it fit that story brand? Uh, And if it doesn't, then, okay, it doesn't have a different name. Do we even want to do it? Like I'm guessing, I mean, we could do a bunch, all kinds of documentaries, but you know, I don't know if Julie is interested in doing a non-comedy documentary. You know, so I think that will be part of it. Is like Julie will work on projects, uh, uh, and if if we have that crossover, then we'll we'll work together to to do what we can do because we are a, a you know it's a good team. I don't know our marriage, our working marriage survived five years you know so yeah uh, we definitely fill in each other's gaps and expertise you know areas like nick has the stuff that he does i have this stuff that i do and um yeah I, I think it's been a really great partnership but i i for one um when the right ideas come along you're nick is correct in that like i'm not gonna just do anything it has to be a good uh you know again an original unique, brilliant idea for me to want to do it, but I'm very much uh, looking forward to working again together in some capacity. And I, and I think it'll be a little easier too. Cause I mean, because this was Julie's first time around, which is, I think a lot of, we spent a lot of time 
having to to be like this is this is how you make a film you know like and julie in meetings would just have to be like i don't maybe this is a dumb question that everyone knows the answer to but i have no idea what you're talking about right, right now can you explain what this means you know uh and so uh i think it'll be a lot uh the next ones will be a lot easier because because we'll have gone through the process together and julie is more of a veteran now of, of filmmaking uh and what the process is like um uh, yeah like those kind of things just for the record, I, I play dumb on purpose sometimes. <laughs> it's a journalism trick to be like, so what do you mean yeah. by, can you explain? I'm not all that dumb all the time. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and making I, movies I hate- is an irrational process. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. It's still storytelling. I, I'm good at telling a story about comedy. So in, in those respects, I think I pulled my weight. Um, I hate to ask just another question, but I have to. Um, what was your style for asking questions during interviews? Like, I mean, were you guys just tagging each other in and out and both interviewing the subject? Or did you guys pick one person to do the interview depending on who it was? Like, how did you guys handle that as co-directors? It was mostly me doing the bulk of it. Um, Cause I can, you know, research everything that needs to be researched in the comedy realm a little bit better. And with the vast majority of people already had a relationship with them. Um, and nice know how to talk to comedians in general so yeah. anything that i missed at the end nick would kind of chime in with yeah if there was like store a story beat that i was like oh we need more of this or we missed this thing or oh we could use this connective bite then i might be like oh hey uh, just to follow up on what julie was asking can you talk about that first night back or whatever the thing is that uh because sometimes, you know, an interview would just go, you never know what direction an interview would go. And you ask someone, we would usually start, Julie would ask with like, okay, so just tell us about where were you on 9-11? And everyone had a story. And some of those stories uh, would take up a lot of the interview and some would be a little thing. So sometimes it was just, okay, we're almost at, we got two minutes left. Let's, let's get these three things that we need from them real quick, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, just rapid fire where they're getting distracted by different people it was yeah there was definitely a set process to it nice okay i'm done i promise (laughs) (laughs) now this is great because i mean julie and i have not done a lot of interviews uh together so it's uh it's good to be able to get into the 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 weeds and the details with you guys well that was another (laughs) good thing about you know our different roles of like nick was able to kind of handle all the film press and i handed handled more of the comedy press and covered more mm-hmm. ground and knew what we were talking about in different areas but yeah it's it's nice. good to be uh i'm gonna miss seeing them on zoom every couple days so <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a good final time around nice well then let's segue to the final five questions dun, dun, dun. um all right so we need each of you to answer each question Whoever goes first, up to you. Uh, I know Julie's answer. What is the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? The first film I've made is called Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, currently (laughs) available on Vice platforms as well as their YouTube page. I'm extremely proud of it. Um, It's it's for sure a all-time career high that I'm, uh, yeah, going to uh, get a poster framed and stick it up there with the rest of my little journalism covers as soon as possible. Nice. Um, uh, what do I consider like the first thing I made? I mean, I started making videos in high school. I'm trying to remember what 
the first one was. It might have been something like how to load a Pez dispenser. Uh, and it was uh, as if it was like a 1950s, uh, you know, tutorial, like very, uh, you know, like the, the, first you get up first you buy Pez and like, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, but then it goes a little off the rails, which uh, and becomes like he's dancing with the Pez dispenser and gets crazy. But, yeah, I, I started out making videos uh, like that uh, in school, uh, in high school. And I find them very fun. I know my friends who were acting in them are very embarrassed by them, but I find them uh, an interesting. It's interesting to see just like, oh, yeah, like, oh, OK. I always liked comedy stuff and I always liked uh, things that were taking the standard and figuring out a way to make it a little weird and different. What's the base, best uh, filmmaking advice or writing advice that you've ever received? Uh, for me, the writing advice is always the basic show, don't tell. It applies to anything, whether it's journalism, whether it's filmmaking. Um, and what was the first one? No, that, that was it, I think. Or if, I mean, if you, if you have filmmaking advice, you could answer that oh, too. Oh, filmmaking advice. Uh, work with good collaborators who you trust and you share a vision. Don't uh, jump into something that you're like, oh, I hope it'll work. Be sure up top. Nice. Uh, I would say for writing, a screenwriter teacher said the only rule of screenwriting is keep it interesting. Like you can fail at all the other aspects and grammar and punctuation. If people keep turning the page because they're interested in what's going to happen next, like that's the biggest rule. Uh, and then filmmaking, I, I wrote a uh, article for Movie Maker Magazine about uh, Werner Herzog gave this lecture at my college which was an amazing lecture, but one of his like main takeaways is that um, uh, people are more likely to help you if you are doing something than if you're thinking about doing something. So just start, say, I'm making a movie. I am shooting. It's shooting now. Like it's already in process. It's our, the train's already left the station. And like, do you want to hop on this train versus can you help me build a train? Like nobody wants to help you build a train. People <laughs> want to hop on a train that's already going. I still uh, think punctuation is important. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, what are your goals as filmmakers? I'm <clears throat> uh, moving forward from here. Um, I want to stay with the path that I think I've always carved out for myself within the comedy industry of having a reputation of someone who is not going to just... Um, you know, build off of the, the soundbite out of context or listicles or, you know, hot takes um, that it's real and honest and unique and telling the stories that no one else is telling and finding a unique perspective to tell potential audiences why someone or something is unique and special. I, yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of a philosophy I, I've only come to in the last year or so or six months of thinking about the film and why it worked and why I want to do what I want to do in the future. And I, I don't know, I like, I like little devices. So like I, I'm calling it like the three E's, which is I like to entertain, educate, and enlighten people. And so... If I can get two of those three, that's good. If I can get all three, then that's perfect because 
I don't know. I feel like too soon is very entertaining. You do learn a lot. And then hopefully it's a little enlightening on philosophy and healing power of comedy. And so I'm just looking at the projects that I work on the future. I just want to be, does it check those boxes? Uh, Because I want to make something that has value for an audience, not just for me. And I feel like those are the three things I'm, I'm looking at now. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Hmm. Feel free to go first, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about what other people are doing. You know, just things happen in their own time. So just focus on, don't waste time and energy worrying about what other people are working on and succeeding or failing and just worry about your own projects. Cause that's just, and also maybe waste. Yeah. Just time management would probably be the biggest thing. Cause I look back on what I wasted time on. I was like, Oh, I could have written so many more scripts if I wasn't worried about this thing, which now seems so frivolous and, and just a time sucker drain. I think mine would be um, maybe for, a more specific group of people. Um, but I definitely consider myself more of an introvert and someone who only ever wants to work alone. And I only trust like my vision of things. Um, I think I would have tried to put myself out for collaboration in a lot of ways, a lot sooner and changed my mindset about, um, you know, it's got to be my way or I'm not doing this story or anything else. Um, and that was even part of an essay that I wrote. We uh, had gotten a $5,000 grant from women making a scene. And I had kind of learned through this process, uh, collaboration can actually bring out a lot of good attributes in you and pair you up with someone else and you, you know, play off each other and it helps make both of you better is something that I definitely learned in this process. And if I could go back and try and do that sooner. Final question. Is making movies hard? Yes. I mean, short answer, yes, it is. Uh, well, I, I don't know. Making a good movie is hard. It's very easy to make a bad movie. And I uh, made plenty when I was in high school uh, and fooling around with a video camera. But uh, it is challenging to make a good film in my opinion i personally uh spent a lot of sleepless nights tossing and turning and oh my gosh if this doesn't work out what's gonna happen and in the process of doing that might have missed out on the fun aspects of it like oh yeah we are interviewing these people and we are making progress the whole time and it was just like trusting yourself to see it through um, I think it was maybe more mentally, emotionally difficult than in practicality, I think. Cause yeah, like Nick and, you know, Werner said, you, you, you just do it. <laughs> this thing is happening. So it's more, I think, getting over the mindset hurdle in my opinion. Nice. So where should people go to, to watch the movie? It's out now on Vice, but do you have like a link, a URL? Like where should people head? Yeah, I mean, if you go to YouTube and you type in Too Soon Vice, it'll pop up on the Vice channel. And if you're listening to this in the, in the deep future, uh, if you just go to toosoondoc.com, 
there'll always be a link to wherever it is uh, playing or wherever you can watch it. And then just out of curiosity, do you know how long it's going to be on the Vice's YouTube before they pull it down? I think it's through November. November, early November. November nice. is what we've seen so far. But So, so when people are listening to this in the future, which is about two weeks from now, you will be able to watch it still. And it'll probably yes. have 1.4 million views by then. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Okay, Ulrich. If Nick and Julie were on the show today, what question would you ask them? I would want to know if they're working together again on another documentary. And then I would want to know specifically how they felt about the release of their film now, like a year, two years later, just to see like, do they still feel good about it? Was it the way they wanted it to go? Do they feel like they have any regrets? Like, I want to hear all that juicy stuff about their internal feelings about the release of their movie. I don't know if you ever heard, did you listen to this one? You, you, you must have been producing it this time. Yeah, I was a stand up comedian during 9-11 during that time. So I am I would have a number of questions for them. And also, I think it'd be kind of interesting to have sort of a follow up because, you know, just after 9-11, of course, it was extremely hard. Like there was nobody was laughing. We, We weren't having a good time as a country or as a world. And it was really, really dark times. And I feel like we're. We're kind of going through a, not similar, I I don't want to draw straight comparisons, but we're also in kind of a strange time now with comedy as well, with because the country feels very divided, I feel like everything that people bring up tends to be very divisive. So I think that some there's a documentary to be told right now along those same lines. And I, I would be very interested in hearing something about that. So I think they might be the people to tackle that. Nice. Awesome. Well, now it's time to play another one of your wonderful creations, Eric. You're the expert. So this is a another segment that Eric created where basically Eric comes up with a question that Liz and I are the experts in and that we have the definitive answer on. But Liz isn't here, so I'm going to answer it by myself. But since Eric is here, I was figuring, you know, maybe you want to try answering it too. Although maybe you asked it because you figured you didn't know the answer. But I don't know. I want to hear what you have to say. So do you want me to answer first or do you want to answer first? How do you want to do this? Let me ask you because I wrote it for you and for Liz. But I would love to take a, I would love to answer it as well because I do have feelings about this. Okay. When promoting yourself as a filmmaker, what kind of online materials should I have? Meaning, do I need a website or is a good social media presence enough? Oh, yeah. Websites. I was like big on the website in the beginning. Like I felt like every short film should have a website and like you need to have a website with your movie or whatever. And then I realized that mo- many, many features don't even have websites. You know, it's it's really, they just go off their social media or they have their trailer or they have a, a press kit somewhere on the director's or producer's website. Like, you know, a website for a movie is not like a, a must have. And I didn't have one for the alternate, um, although I had one for my first short film, The Str- Strange Thing. And then I would do websites like on my website, like do little pages for each of my shorts. And then I did did the same thing for the alternate. So I had a page on my website for the alternate with alternate stuff on there. Like, you know, like basically our EPK in in so many terms. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like you can, you can have a website or you can not have a website. That's kind of up to you. But I think like having a place where all your information 
agent is that you can share with people easily is really important, but that could be on a Google drive or a Dropbox or something. Like you could like upload your, your EPK, like in a document form onto there, and then, you know, have the links to your stills and your trailer and all that stuff on there. So people can access it when they're trying to cover your movie. But I do feel like there are are a few things that you, you should definitely must have. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. I think the EPK, I'm not gonna say everybody has to have one. It just makes it so much easier if you do, because it just allows everyone to access the information on your movie really quickly. So if someone wants to do an article on you or review the movie or whatever, like all the information is in one place. Definitely a trailer, definitely stills, behind the scenes stills I love. I think those are really important. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably more important to have stills from the actual movie because that's what like writers prefer. But I like to have both. So I'll do like behind the scenes stills and a folder for stills from the movie, like frames. And then also poster for sure too. And so I feel like poster, trailer, stills, and the EPK, which would include like every like quotes from your favorite reviews, all your film festival placements, all your awards, just kind of like all the history of your movie, a director statement, director bio, other crew bios, if you want, you know, just like to have a whole thing on there. And so I feel like that's all like really important, easy stuff to do, but it doesn't really rely on a website. And then social media, oh, I feel like (laughs) everyone gets all hyped on social media. And I feel like you kind of have to do it these days because you have to have a place where people can can become fans of your work. And so it's really easy for that to be a Facebook page or an Instagram account or both, you know, or Twitter. I would say like the advice I got was to do all three. Like, yeah, you have to have a Twitter, you have to have Facebook, you have to have Instagram. And I think the better advice is you don't necessarily have to have all three, but like have at least one that you update like regularly and that you put energy into. Yeah. So if I was to do it again, I like Facebook just because I feel like Facebook's really easy to like, like uh, collect like things. Like you can have like your website there really easily. You can have your trailer right there really easily. You can have stills right there really easily. Like it's just a really easy place to kind of collect all that kind of media. But then I think Instagram is probably a better place to find fans and to interact with people. So I think on my next movie, I'll probably do Facebook and Instagram and like skip Twitter or TikTok or any of these other ones. But yeah, what do you think, Eric? What, what What's important to you for your movie to, to have online? I 100% agree with what you were saying. I mean, like if it's the sort of thing like you really squeezed pennies in order to make your film, and you're, you know, it's you're putting all of your money into film festival uh, submissions. Yeah, just have a Google Drive link that has your EPK, which I think is is 100% valuable. Like, you're, it's it's not going to cost you anything. Most of them are text documents or just like pictures that, you know, you either took on your iPhone or something like that. You have to have that sort of stuff. I would also say, regards to social media, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's the sort of thing we, we you just can't not have it. And I don't think you have to do a ton of work for it. As long as you have a page, somebody knows, and they're kind of matching thumbnails throughout. So there is some sort of there is some sort of synergy amongst the whole thing. I hate to use that word, but it's somebody knows when they go to your Facebook page, it looks the same as your Instagram page. It looks the same as your Twitter page. I I don't know if you have to be hyper uh, vigilant when it comes to uh, 
keeping them updated all the time, I, I think there's a real diminishing return there. Uh, you know, it's good to have the stuff there so when people find you or, you know, they scan a QR code that you have someplace, then they, they have a landing page that, land, that that goes to that social media. And, and yeah, you, you will find people when you go to film festivals, when you're just kind of out and about, if you tell somebody about your film, they'll go to your Instagram page and they'll check it out. They'll go to your Facebook page. I've never had good luck on Twitter, but I know there are really large vibrant communities on Twitter uh, I I think it's it's kind of a crazy sometimes toxic place so I'm not a huge Twitter guy and then when it comes to websites I I have had a website for about 25 years and I don't know if it's ever helped me but having said that I think when you are gearing up for a film if you're going out to investors if you're trying to attract people to you, having a website does give you a sense of legitimacy. And also, chances are, if you're a filmmaker, an indie filmmaker in this modern day and age, you probably have a couple of jobs. So you may have a day job where like, oh, you're an editor, but then also you're a filmmaker, but then you're also interested in these other things. And I think with, I don't want to give a plug to anybody who's not giving us any money, but there are so many different companies right now that make setting up websites really, really cheap and easy. Uh, once upon a time, you know, when I first got my website, you had to hire somebody who knew multiple different uh, code languages. Otherwise, you just, it was, you, you couldn't get anything up. Thanks to a lot of like templates and drag and drop kind of scenarios that they have now, you can set up a really robust website that has so many different avenues for people to support you, be it Patreon or to invest in your film or to check out your work or to post your work all in one place. Because one of the things that I think that is difficult about going to a Facebook or Instagram is it's really easy for people to get sidetracked. And just like, oh, I'm going to go check out this person's Instagram. Oh, and somebody messaged me. I'm going to go off. And then they're all of a sudden they're off on a tangent. When they go to your website, they're just going to be on your website. So that is kind of nice. So if you do have a couple extra bucks, I would say throw it onto a website. It is, I, I do think it is kind of worth it just to have your entire portfolio there. But if you're, if, if money's a little tight for you, just have a Google Doc and have your EPK on there. And I think that'll be enough. Nice. Amazing. Well, I think I want I want to know what other people are doing. What are, do, do you guys agree with? With that list, is there anything that Eric and I are missing that would be more important to have online? Let us know at podcast at makingmovesishard.com. If you really like the show, you can also leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMI Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. See, we have everything at Making Movies is Hard, not just one. We have all of them. <laughs> Thanks to our editor, Jeff Ryman, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for doing our social media, as always. And thanks to our producer, Eric Combs, right here for being Woo! rad and for filling in for Liz today. And thanks you all for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. Our house is a mess. Come
Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge? It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.